0: Uh, so I want to begin by summarizing last week. We're in Acts 16. We're in this two-year-plus journey through the book of Acts, and we happen to be in Acts 16. And the last two-thirds of Acts 16 gives these, these stories of three different people in Philippi, the city of Philippi, who encounter Jesus in unique ways, each of them, and are saved by him in unique ways. The first was Lydia. Lydia uh, was the first convert in all of what we now call Europe. Um, She's this um, semi-wealthy woman who comes to encounter Jesus through Paul and Silas, the apostles. And Lydia gives us a really good uh, study in how to respond to the message of Jesus. Listen, accept, submit, and serve. Uh, Lydia shows all four of those things. Um, And so she's a hero. The next salvation encounter was this, this possessed slave girl. And she was following Paul and Silas around, proclaiming, these men come in the name of the Most High God. They will lead the way to salvation, which sounds like something you would want somebody to proclaim for you if, if you're a missionary, but um, it was an ingenuine confession. And she was possessed, and, and the demons or whatever that were proclaiming it were proclaiming so uh, ingenuinely. And so Paul has enough, and, and his temper gets the best of him. He says, enough, no more. And he commands the demon to come out of this girl. And that is a huge blow to her owners who were profiting hugely off her ability to tell a future. And so they, the only time Gentiles ever react against the gospel is always when their money's at stake. And I don't, in, in the book of Acts, and I don't know what that means for us today. It probably means something, but they react by, by inciting a, a mob mentality against Paul and Silas and they rush them to the magistrates, the judges, the town judges, and they have them thrown in prison because because they did something good. They they helped this woman. Sure, she was making a fortune for her owners, but she was also totally captive to the thing that possessed her, to to the evil that possessed her. And so even though she had been freed from that, Paul and Silas were punished. And so where we find ourselves today is Paul and Silas sitting in prison. They've been beaten harshly. They don't deserve to be in prison um, for a number of reasons. All they did was something good, and here they are suffering. And we today we, we encounter the third of our three unique stories of regular people who encounter the salvation of Jesus in a unique way through his messengers. And his messengers are Paul, Silas, Timothy, who is a young man in the traveling group, and he has a couple books of the Bible named after him. Paul wrote him letters. And Luke, who is the author of Acts. Uh, so of these three characters, today we're going to meet the third, today on Easter Sunday. And I think it's a worthwhile story. I think it helps us to understand our own encounter with the resurrected Jesus. However, a warning. This is not a sermon. Again, I don't know if you come looking for a sermon, but I had done this back in November, and I wanted to do it again. It, I wanted to really examine the story of our third Philippian, the jailer who was in charge of keeping Paul and Silas in custody. I, I wanted to see it through his eyes, and so I wrote a story. So a couple things to know. First of all, I'm imagining him giving an extended account of his story to Luke. Again, Luke is the author of Acts. He was also a doctor. Um, What happened with Luke was when when Paul, Timothy, and Silas leave Philippi, they leave Luke behind. Luke stays in Philippi. We talked about how in Philippi, that's the first time that Luke in his writing says "we" instead of "they" because Luke was there; he was a part of the story. But there's a long break until chapter 20 where he doesn't do that anymore. Now it's "they" again. And we don't meet Luke again until um, until Paul ends up back in Philippi. So Luke stayed behind, probably as a leader in this new baby church in Philippi. Luke was probably a leader in the home of Lydia, the I Remember that word? What a great word. Purperarii are the people who made purple cloth. And it's just a really super fun word to say, and I, any chance I can say it, I will. Um, so Luke doesn't accompany them. So I'm imagining... Um, Luke be er interviewing the jailer is what I'm what what I'm imagining. Just as some background so you understand what's going on. So, as the classic TV and movie warning goes, my story takes the historical account of Acts 16 and embellishes it for effect. This was this probably didn't happen, but if it did happen something like this, I based it entirely on the scriptures. So it's not wildly out of place, it's not outside the realm of possibility, it's rooted in the story of Acts 16. But the dialogue is entirely imagined, just so you know. So, let's meet our jailer. (laughs) This is kind of like acting, and I'm not a good actor, so just bear with me. Brother Luke, this is an unexpected pleasure. Come in, come in. I'll have someone wash your feet and and, uh, bring you some roasted figs. No, I insist. My wife loves these roasted figs. She makes them all the time. They're ripe and delicious. She dips them in honey. Have you ever tried that? It's delicious. Here, let me take your tunic. Uh, To what do I owe this unexpected visit? You're, of course, welcome to stop by any time. It's just that I only ever see you at our regular meal and worship times on, on Saturdays at Lydia's home. Do you come with news from our brothers Paul and Silas? No? Oh, that's a shame. I miss them dearly. I owe them very much, as you know. My wife and my entire household owes us so much. Our whole church owes them very much. And they left us just as quickly as they had arrived. Ah, speaking of my wife, she arrives now with the figs and honey. Thank you, my love. Before you go, would you have Silvius and Remus attend to the prisoners in the third cell, please? They've been pleading for relief since before our guest arrived. Have my men bring the prisoners extra water and cloth bandages for their shackled wrists. Thank you, dear. I have the feeling Brother Luke and I will be occupied in conversation for quite some time. Am I right, good doctor? I guessed as much. So again, I ask, to what do I owe the honour of your visit, my friend? a manuscript, you say? And what exactly are you writing about, if I might ask? Really? That sounds like an incredibly valuable topic to write about. And you think my story might aid in your history of the fledgling way of Jesus? Well, no. It's not that I have a problem sharing my story. In fact, quite the opposite. Ever since my first encounter with the way of Jesus, I've been quite eager to share it with anyone who'll listen. Sometimes that means the brothers and sisters at Lydia's place, as you know, but more often than not, I've been sharing it with my captive audience just across the courtyard. No audience more captive than a bunch of condemned criminals, right? So I don't mind sharing, it's just that, well, I'm not sure that I'm worthy of being included in a document of such beautiful purpose. My name is nothing compared to the names of Silas, Paul, Timothy, or you, Brother Luke, or Lydia, our gracious meeting host. I'm no one special. I don't deserve to have my name go down in history. I'm just a man who was released from death by the extraordinary grace of a condemned man. So I guess what I'm asking is, if you do end up using my story in your manuscript, just go ahead and keep me anonymous. So, where would you like to begin? At the beginning? Well, that makes sense, certainly. I remember every event of that late autumn afternoon as clearly as I remember my first day of military training, or the birth of my first daughter, or the day I was appointed as head jailer in the great city of Philippi. That was the day that I was reborn. I remember the commotion in the main square of the city that day. We retired soldiers are trained by Rome from day one to maintain the Pax Romanus, the great peace of Rome. Any disruption in even the most remote corner of the empire is to be treated like a threat at the very doorstep of Caesar himself. And so when I heard the angry screams, the voices growing in number and in volume, I immediately left the prisoner I'd been attending to in charge of one of my slaves and hurried to the prison entrance. From there, I could see down to the town square. The magistrates were still on the bema in the center of the town, standing to catch sight of the chaotic scene across the courtyard from them. I couldn't see the violence of the mob myself. I could only hear their screams of rage from the increasingly unruly crowd. I knew I would be getting fresh company in the prison soon, so I made haste to the empty cells and had them prepared for the arrival of some unknown miscreants or rabble-rousers. And it wasn't long before those miscreants arrived. Shockingly quick, in fact. There was no way that a proper trial had been conducted in that short of a time. But that wasn't surprising to me when I caught sight of my quarry. They were Jews. I had held many Jews in custody over the last few decades, usually for inciting some type of rebellion against Rome. Not one of these Israelites had ever been a Roman citizen, which explained the thorough beating that they had endured. Roman citizens, as you know, Luke, are exempt from that sort of treatment. If Roman citizens, had been beaten with the lictor's rods without a trial, then the magistrates would be punishable to Caesar for betraying Roman legal proceedings. It would be an unparalleled breach of Roman justice if Roman citizens had been beaten like this. And these men had certainly met with the lictors. Naked and chained at the wrists and ankles when they arrived, the prisoners walked with the unmistakable lope of one who had been beaten mercilessly and was still in shock of it. You're a doctor. Brother Luke, you know the pain I speak of. Eyes wide and red, glossed over with adrenaline. The pungent metallic smell of sweat and blood. But the worst of it is when they walk past you and you bear witness to the fullness of their suffering. The backs of their shoulders, their torso, their buttocks, their legs are a portrait of carnage and calamity. You were there when you, they were beaten, weren't you, Brother Luke? You watched blow after vicious blow render their flesh like cuts of lamb at the marketplace. In my former life as a Roman soldier, I used to delight in inflicting pain just like this in the name of Roman justice. In my former life as a Roman jailer, I used to take a brutal sort of satisfaction in knowing that my lord Caesar was entrusting the suffering of his enemies to my willing and blood-soaked hands. But I no longer identify as a Roman soldier or a Roman jailer. Those criminals that were brought to me soon released me from that former life. I'm a Christian a Christ person, just like you, Luke. I remain a jailer, but I'm not a jailer for the glory of Rome anymore. I am now a jailer for the glory of God. But I'm getting off track. The two Jewish prisoners were handed over to me by the lictors, who gave me only one instruction, guard these ones carefully. It's not my job to judge the men in my charge as innocent or guilty. It's not even my job to know the crimes that have landed them behind the iron bars in the prison of Philippi. I never know if they're a tax cheater or a murderer. A thief or an anti-Roman revolutionary? I have no idea. I don't know, and I don't care. doesn't matter. My job isn't to know. My job is a very simple one. Keep the prisoner until I'm called to present them to the higher authorities. It doesn't matter if it's two hours or two weeks or two decades that I hold them. I am to keep them under my watch until they're ready to face their justice. Of course, in the meantime, I was able to apply my own sense of justice to the proceedings. There are chains and bars as there are in any prison. My, my prison has those as well. But I've always been fond of the leg stocks. Criminals laying down on beaten and battered backs with legs forced apart and arms chained upwards to the wall so that every little shift of weight creates a momentary tiny relief that is immediately engulfed in a new and tremendous source of agony. For nights on end, they stayed like that with only a small daily ration of bread and water. No release for cleaning their wounds, no release for bodily functions. No release from justice that they deserve. That was my job. And I was, to my great shame, very good at my job. For these two Jewish criminals, however, putting their legs in the stocks was merely a matter of security, more than torture. It was impressed on me early on, take care of these men, make sure they're guarded. And so I escorted them to the deepest inner cell, cut into the very rock of the hill itself. There, they were thrown to the floor and fastened side by side, and their meager clothing, just as torn and bloodied as themselves, were tossed in after them. I closed and locked the door myself, as I always did. Never had a man in my prison escaped the justice he was to face. Never. Never had I failed to present them to the magistrates upon command, except in the frequent case where the prisoner succumbed to both his injuries and his exposure to hunger, cold, and most deadly of all. Terror. It was late by this point, nearing sundown. I went for my meal with my household, my family, and several slaves, who you know well, Brother Luke, from our meeting times. After the meal, I made my final rounds before extinguishing the torches outside the cells. I'm always curious to hear what my new prisoners sound like on that first night of imprisonment. Most curse at the gods, or at the magistrates, or at themselves. Others merely wail or whimper in agony of the spirit and agony of the body. These Jewish prisoners, they were not like that. They weren't like that at all. They neither cursed nor moaned. Instead, they sang. And not songs of rage or vengeance either. They sang songs of praise to their one true God. In fact, they sang the same song that we sing every Saturday in Lydia's house. They sang, He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Time out, by the way. That's from Philippians, the book of Philippians. That's Philippians 2. Paul wrote that in a different prison. And it's a song that probably the Philippian church actually did sing together. And so it's not outside the realm of possibility. This is the song they actually, I just think that's cool. Back to the story. I haven't been a follower of Jesus for long, and I already have that whole song memorized. Well, they sang it over and over and over in that prison cell, each time a little louder and a little more passionate. It was then, as they sang to their God, that I realized where I had seen them before. They were the travelers everyone was talking about, a somewhat notorious group that you yourselves were a part of, weren't you, Luke? Everyone in Philippi knew about you simply because the little oracle knew about you. You remember the little oracle? Of course you remember the little oracle. She was the slave girl who was famous for telling fortunes. Everyone in Philippi knew the little oracle, and when the little oracle said something, everyone in Philippi listened. And that slave girl, that little oracle, had been following these prisoners around declaring them, What did she say? That you were servants of the Most High God who would tell us the way to be saved. And so when she pronounced that, you better believe Philippi listened. When she says anything, even in mockery, the people of Philippi are all ears. So I had heard of these strange traveling Jewish preachers, and here they were in my prison, singing to the God that they taught about that the oracle had spoken of. The singing itself was this unearthly, unnatural sound among the dark blood-soaked stone and iron of the prison. It was a startling sound, in a way, more startling than, than in that setting than any scream of agony or plea for mercy. And what was truly remarkable was how the entire rest of the prison was utterly silent. Every other prisoner, no matter their notoriety, was listening to the lovely song of their fellow inmates. Their resilient worship in the depths of black suffering was mesmerizing to every person in that prison. It's something that I'll never forget, nor do I want to. Finally, I extinguished the last of the torches, pitching the entire prison into a state of total darkness. We jailers call that the hour of despair. The singing in the inner cell was replaced with quiet prayer. I crossed the short courtyard, entered my gate, and sat down at this very table that we're sitting at now. I poured myself some wine, but I didn't drink any. My mind kept wandering to these strange prisoners. Their lovely hymns of praise echoed in my mind long after I had drifted to sleep. Brother Luke, I'm sure you've seen pain. You're a doctor. I'm sure you've seen suffering. I was well acquainted with suffering. Suffering was a tool of my job. We worship a man who tasted agony unlike any man or woman has ever known. But that spirit of endurance those lyrics of sincere praise in the midst of what I now recognize as absolute injustice, that is a thing of unmatched beauty that more than any sermon, more than any prophecy, more than any letter, that willingness to submit to his name, even as that submission leads to cruel beatings and filthy prisons, (coughs) excuse me, and lonely oppression. That willingness to submit is what will change all of Macedonia, all of Rome, all of humankind forever to suffer so greatly and still rejoice in Jesus' name, that's how this mustard seed kingdom that we're learning about will spread and overtake the mighty arrogance of Rome. The song of the condemned Christian is an unstoppable force. I learned that on that night in my prison. And so, if the night ended there, it would have been memorable enough, Brother Luke. But the night was not over. In fact, it would go from memorable to transformative in a matter of hours. It wasn't long before I awoke with a startle to the sound of screams. Living next door to a prisoner, you're used to screams in the night, but these these were different. This was my wife screaming from within the house. She was screaming my name, and after a moment I was able to process why. My unsampled cup of wine had vibrated off the table and shattered on the floor. We were in the midst of an earthquake. I didn't even answer the call of my wife. I'm a man of honor and duty bound to my responsibilities, and my responsibility was to the prisoners in my charge. I was responsible for the secure containment of every prisoner in that prison. So I grabbed my sword, and I hurried across the courtyard to check the damage. The earth by this point had stilled, but it had been replaced by the resounding pound of my panicked heart. The worst fear of any jailer had been realized. Even in the midnight dark, I could tell that the doors had been swung open. Never, as I mentioned, had I failed to present a man in my custody to the magistrates when called upon, but if I ever had failed, then my punishment would have been equal to the punishment of the convict who had escaped. If they had been a thief and were to be beaten with rods and I let them go, then I was to be beaten with rods. If they were to have the hand cut off, I would have my hand cut off. If they were to be executed, I would be executed. And so to find that all of my convicts had escaped was equivalent to the death sentence. I knew it had to be done. As a man of honor, the only honorable thing for me to do was to forfeit my life in payment for my failure. And so I drew my steel blade and dropped the scabbard, clanging to the floor, letting out the briefest cry of despair. I knelt down and put the point of the sword to my throat and prepared to drop myself onto it. I thought briefly of my family, but that was washed out by the overwhelming call to bring justice upon myself. Death was what I deserved. Death is what I deserve. I said that to myself in my head twice. And the third time I spoke it aloud. Death is what I deserve. I embraced my doomed and deserved fate. But just then, just before I plunged the sword into my throat, a call rang out from the far depths of the black prison. Don't harm yourself. We are here. I recognized the voice immediately. It was one of the Jewish prisoners. It was Paul. I halted my personal death sentence more out of surprise than relief. Who would be foolish enough to remain? An earthquake powerful enough to swing open prison doors must be powerful enough to loosen the stalks and break chain from wall. And even if the two singing fools remained, what of the other prisoners? It was too dark to know for sure, but if all the, the gates are open, they must have fled. I cast my sword aside and called for my servants to light the torches and bring them. Though it was only a few moments before they arrived, it felt like all of eternity, standing on the edge of the dark corridor of condemnation, waiting to see what had happened. Every nerve was frayed, and I was frantic for answers. Who were these men proclaimed as servants of the most high God, and who was this God? Who was this God that they sang to in bloody chains? Who was this God, trembler of the earth, who sends powerful miracles to deliver his people, and who are his people who refuse to flee from death and judgment, who stay put? though it could cost them their lives. How could I have been saved? How could this have happened? And where was that torch already? Finally, the torches came, and I ran into the innermost cell. My question about the fellow prisoners was answered immediately. All were accounted for. In fact, all were gathered around these two followers of Jesus. Later, I would be struck by the question, why didn't they leave? Even if Paul and Silas stayed, why didn't they leave? How did these two traveling preachers convince? convinced these convicts to stay and in so doing preserve my life. How did that happen? I don't know. Maybe they, like me, were captivated by the power of this God and the power of this God's two servants. Later, I would ponder these things. But in that moment, as I fell trembling at the feet of these beautiful battered convicts, all the urgent questions of salvation and unknown gods and miraculous earthquakes and narrow escapes from death coalesced into one simple question, inquired weakly from quivering lips, My lords, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? I was ready to offer sacrifices, to pay whatever tribute they demanded. I was ready to say whatever magical incantation they demanded. Before their God struck again, I needed to know, What must I do to be saved? That's when the man who I love more than a brother, the servant of the Most High God who is chiefly responsible for me still being alive, the apostle who first enabled me to encounter Jesus the Savior, that's when Paul of Tarsus took my hand and helped me to my feet. Just hours ago, I had been the authority figure. Just hours ago, I had seen his agony and denied him relief. Just hours ago, I had cast him into a cold cell and chained him to the floor to suffer mercilessly and now he raised me to my feet as gently as a father helping his baby daughter to walk. The gentleness of his helping hand was matched only by the kindness in his eyes, a sort of compassion that rocked me like aftershocks to the miraculous tremors that had opened his prison doors. By now, my wife, children, and slaves had joined us in the depths of the dark prison. As I stood, captivated by the grace of this condemned Christ follower, he spoke the words that birthed me anew, saying, "Do." brother, this is what you must do. Believe in the Lord Jesus. You will be saved. He motioned to my family and said, you and all your household. This, of course, made little sense to me. Simply believe? I'm a man of honor. I'm a man of ritual. What about offerings and tributes and money? What about magical incantations and secret prayers and ritual declarations? As a Roman officer, I wondered what words of allegiance must I make to this new God. My face must have betrayed this inability to understand because Silas spoke up saying, Brother, there is nothing that you need to do other than have faith in what our Lord Jesus has already done. What do you know of the Lord Jesus, the Christ? I told him that he wasn't making much sense, that I understood that Caesar was Lord. It was Caesar who saved. It was Caesar who was king of all kings. It was Caesar who was our Christos, our savior. It was Caesar that I was willing to sacrifice my life to in service to his great empire. Paul and Silas smiled at all of that. We have much to discuss, Paul said. And as he motioned to put his hand on my back, that slight movement caused a visible shudder of pain across his beaten back. And I remembered what had happened to them. Come with me, I told them. I had the other prisoners put back in their cells, but none were chained up. In the morning, they would be rewarded with a full hearty breakfast and clean clothing. The first time for many of them, in weeks and months. They would become more like guests in need of care rather than cockroaches in need of crushing. This has become the way I've run my prison ever since, grace over judgment, compassion over vengeance. And Paul and Silas required much care and compassion to their bodies, while I required much care and compassion to my soul and my mind. My wife fetched them some medicines and fresh tunics while I bathed their wounds in the fountain located in the courtyard between the prison and my home. All the while, they told me of their Lord Jesus. They told me how he too had released common people from pain and evil, just as they themselves had done for the little oracle. They told me how he too had been imprisoned unfairly and trumped up charges. They told me how he too had been beaten and bloodied and tortured. They told me how he too sang and spoke to his Father God during the darkest, loneliest, and most painful moments, before the cross and on the cross. They told me that he, too, had an earthquake accompany his moment of suffering. They told me how he, too, after paying the ultimate price, was tossed into a stone tomb, not unlike the stone prison cell that they had just been in themselves. And Paul talked for a long time about how Jesus, too, emerged from the darkness and the pain and the brutality of that stone tomb into glory and victory and light. It was not us, declared Paul, who took the sword from your throat. It was him. You felt like you deserved to die? Well, we all deserve to die. Silas and I, we deserve to die. We're all fallen and broken and selfish and sinful, and death is what we deserve. But Jesus the Savior has released us from that punishment. His resurrection means he has conquered death. You are no longer imprisoned by the fate you deserve, he told me. He said it over and over again. You are no longer imprisoned by the fate you deserve. You have been released by the blood of Jesus. You have been released from that death in order to taste the fullness of life. Life with him as our good Lord and Master. Life in his kingdom, which is greater than any empire. And it's an honor to sacrifice yourself for his kingdom. Life is filled with purpose and peace and joy. And yes, jailer. Justice. You are released from death in order to experience the fullness of life. And you don't need to do anything except believe and submit. I admit, Brother Luke, that none of this made sense at first. But I believed. Still we believe. Still we sacrifice. And still we learn and grow. And still we follow Jesus as Lord. My wife, older children, and slaves were baptized in the fountain we had cleansed their wounds in. Silas said it best. I cleansed and relieved their broken bodies in the water, and in the same water they cleansed and relieved my broken soul. We then invited these condemned convicts-turned-brothers into our homes, and even then, at that ridiculously late hour, we ate a meal together, laughing and singing and celebrating everyone's release from their various prisons, spiritual or physical, that they had been held captive in. It was the most joyful meal my household has ever experienced. As you know, Luke... The story continues for Paul and Silas. In the morning, the magistrates sent their officers to me with orders for them to be released and leave the city at once. It was then that Paul shocked everyone by revealing his status as a Roman citizen. You could probably speak to his motives more clearly clearly than I could, Brother Luke. Paul refused to be treated any longer as a third-class citizen. He would not leave Philippi in disgrace, for he left behind a vibrant core group of fellow believers, us included, and he needed to protect us by ensuring that this unjust treatment of Christians did not become the norm. And so like Jesus himself, the day after his unfair abuse, he revealed himself for the authority that he had. When the magistrates heard that they had recklessly broken Roman law by refusing Paul and Silas a trial, they capitulated. They begged the apostles for forgiveness, asking them kindly to leave the city, escorted by the city leaders, of course, with dignity rather than shame, to ensure that no further troubles Would occur with the local populace. And so, sadly, after meeting with all the believers at Lydia's home, the men who introduced me and my family to the saving power of Jesus Christ packed up and left my home and left my city. I am wholeheartedly thankful that they once came to my prison. They truly were servants of the Most High God, and they demonstrated their love for their Lord through endurance of suffering, commitment to peacefulness, grace and kindness, and powerful teaching of the way of Jesus. That is how I was released from my prison, from death. I was introduced to the king who conquered it, who conquered death. He faced his suffering willingly because of his great love for those he shared the father with. He shed his blood because I was imprisoned in brokenness and selfishness. And he emerged from his stone-holding cell in power and victory, triumphing over death and releasing all who believe in him from the condemnation they deserve. He took the sword from my throat and spared me in order to serve him. And, Brother Luke, just as you serve the kingdom as a doctor, I now serve the kingdom as a jailer, a jailer who has been released from the dark of death by the light of my living Lord Jesus. Well, I suppose that's enough storytelling and fig snacking for now. I have prisoners to care for, captives who need me to release them in more ways than one. Feel free to use anything from my story in your manuscript, Brother Luke. And make sure that you write it so well that 2,000 years later, some long-witted pastor across the ocean will force his flock to spend two years or more studying this one book. One day they too shall be released. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the story of this jailer. Thank you that in him we see how we are imprisoned as well. And I thank you that more than anything, we see that in him we can be released from that prison, that in you. There's freedom and joy and and grace. That's all possible because of Easter, Jesus. Thank you that you emerged from your cell, your stone tomb, victorious. Thank you that you faced injustice and pain and suffering and agony willingly because of your love for each of us and your love for the Father, Jesus. We thank you that you endured so that we could be saved. And I pray that we, like the jailer, would take this salvation and be transformed by it. Help us to be people who spread your goodness, who spread your glory, who spread your will to the people around us. Help us to be people of love, um, since we are people who've been saved by love. pray all these things in your powerful name, Jesus. Amen. Happy Easter, everyone.